We ask for your blessing on uh, our time in your word as we take every thought captive in obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ, that we would honor him even in our study, that we would uh, listen with obedient hearts, Lord, that we can be here together and acknowledge that your scripture is life-changing. It makes us like Jesus, and that's what we want. That's who we want to be like. And so, pray that you would use this time to instruct us, humble us before your word, that we may walk in it by faith. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right, thank you. Okay, guys, go ahead and open up your Bibles with me. Um, last Lord's Day, unfortunately, we could not gather here because there was a lot of snow on the ground. Um, but this is something that I want to preach through in person, we can, you know, I kind of look you in the eye, we can, we can even look at each other in the eye um, based on this text. I think this is a very, a very key text in terms of, of the Christian life and how we uh, practice godliness and how we practice godliness, especially toward one another before the presence of God. So 1 Peter chapter 3, direct your attention to verse 8, and I will read through verse 12, so please follow along. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life, to love and see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's quite a wonderful text. We will take this Lord's Day and next Lord's Day uh, to go through it, but I think it's very key to understanding the flow of Peter's first letter, especially in regards to what we have just been through. So we do not want to go through a text like this without regard to what has gone before it. So context is very, very uh, important here. So I think the key passage or the key verse in this entire passage is found in, uh, found in verse 10. Uh, and of course, Peter is quoting from the Old Testament, quoting from uh, the Psalms, and we'll get to this portion next week, but just to uh, sort of grease the tracks for us, I think really the focal point is in verse 10 where he says, for the one who desires life to love and see good days. Who is the one who desires that life? I would believe that anyone who identifies with Christ especially would be one who desires life, who desires to love, who desires to see good days. Now, you could really say that this is anyone with the clear thinking clearly would say, yeah, this is just part of being human. What person doesn't desire life? What person doesn't desire love? What person in their right mind does not desire to see good days? Now, of course, the problem that we face immediately here is what do we mean by all of these things? And it is, this is why Scripture is so important. We, when, we, when we look at a, a passage like this, we should say, yes, we desire life, but I, I, I desire life according to what God says about life. To love. Well, I want to love according to God's standard of what love is. Of course I want to see good days. In fact, in Christ, I would anticipate many very good days. I would actually contend that some of our best days are ahead of us. I'm excited about what the Lord's going to do through this church. I'm excited what the gospel's going to do. But even that explanation implies a starting point. To see good days means that we have a biblical idea of what is good. And once we deviate from the pattern and standard of Scripture, we completely lose our compass as to what entails all of this. So, of course, these are good things, good things that we would want to be present in our own lives. It's perfectly natural to desire these things. In fact, it is Jesus himself who said in John 10.10, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it to the full or that they might have it more abundantly. All of these things are things to be desired. It's a, uh, 
it's a true statement that to the writing of books there is no end. Many books have been written, especially so-called Christian books. And as I was going through this text, I was thinking about a book that was written uh, now several years ago, but this was, this was back in the, the good old days of, in sunny Southern California. Um, Katie and I, I think we're married for barely a couple of years, and, and we heard a sermon by Johnny Mack, and I'll never forget it. He was actually uh, preaching a sermon that formed a response to a new blockbuster Christian book that was just guaranteed to revolutionize your life. It was by a man named Joel Osteen. And he, <laughs> it's always, always life-changing, right? Joel Osteen wrote a book it's called Your Best Life Now. Most of us are familiar with that book. Your Best Life Now. I mean, you think, wow, a book like that is going to fly off the shelves at any Christian bookstore or Walmart. It's, it's, got, it's, it's got an appeal to it. Who doesn't want their best life? Think about it from this context. Who doesn't want to see good days to love, to have life? And in that sermon, and I got this quote from, uh, from John, as he was com- commentating on near the beginning of the message, he had this to say when encountering the book. Out of curiosity, I want to know what's in the book, so I found this on page five. God wants this to be the best time of your life. On another page, it says, happy, successful, fulfilled individuals have learned how to live their best life now. On another page, it says, as you put the principles found in these pages to work today, you will begin living your best life now. And I'll never forget what he said to this. He said, and that is absolutely true if you're not a Christian. If you, <laughs> I know, if you, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, yes, the, the best days you have are here. The best days are not ahead. The best, na- the best days ahead are not seen in the context of, of seeing Christ face to face, of being with Him in glory. You know, we... That's great. We eat and drink for tomorrow we die. This is truly, outside of Christ, our best life now. And if you're going to reject him, then that's basically the best you can do. You're going to see the best days as only stuck in the here and now, as stuck to this life. So get all you can, enjoy all you can, be successful, be happy according to the world's standards. But it's absolutely devastating because it means a future without Christ. And that book went on to explain a very man-centered view of Christianity, which, of course, keeps it from being Christianity at all. So suffice it to say, there is a right way of looking, what, looking at what constitutes a good life. Because Peter's talking about it right here. But we want to do it from the context of Scripture, and not based on what man desires, but based on what God tells us. Because what God tells us in a passage like this is what he desires. So I've, in a play on words, I have called this sermon, Your Blessed Life Now. Not best, but we still have to affirm in the same breath that in Christ we live a blessed life. Especially with all we have seen of what Peter has said thus far. You know, talking about a heavenly inheritance, talking about being born again to a living hope, all these cool images of of, of being living stones and being in Christ who is the living stone, being built up as as a holy house, seeing the kingdom of God advance in power. There's a lot to look forward to. There's a lot to be excited about. There's a lot to anticipate. We would see all of those descriptions as commensurate with living a blessed life. They are blessings that we experience even now because we're in Christ. And so those are the things we want to continue to pursue, to continue to emphasize, to continue to enjoy even. We are living a blessed life. And here is where Peter spells it out very clearly, I believe. And we can break this text down into three parts. We'll get through the first two today. So verse 8, and then about halfway, verse 8 and 9, about halfway through 9, I would say, would constitute the first part. That's just basically Peter's expression of of, of a blessed life, what what it looks like. And we would talk about that in connection with 
godly character. If you look down this list, it's all about a godly character. It's instruction that Peter's giving us. And of course, he is speaking as unto believers. These are things that believers should seek to cultivate that should, in a supernatural way, express themselves in our lives and in our church community. And then, of course, we have, and this is a familiar pattern with Peter, we have something expressed, right? We have something that is put forward, like this is, this is the instruction, this is the command, this is the way it is. And then he'll explain it. There's a, there is a, what we call a purpose clause, usually starts with the word for, and we have it right here. So draw your attention to the last half of verse 9. He says, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing, So what he is going to instruct us in terms of godly character is then going to be explained by what we could call a godly calling. So very clear, very logical. So this is our blessed life now, and we will see, I believe, the blessings increase as we grow spiritually with one another. And even though we understand the context of, uh, especially of 1 Peter is, being in the midst of suffering, marginalization from an unbelieving pagan society who does not embrace Christ as Savior and King, we understand that blessings blessings do not preclude suffering. In fact, they often work in tandem. In fact, it is through the most severe kinds of suffering that we often realize how blessed we are. We often realize those things that cannot be taken away from us when everything else is. And so I think this is a very appropriate text for us this morning, especially in light of what Peter has written before. So let's look at this. Let's look at these first uh, three words in verse 8. Peter says this, to sum up. So when we, when we say that, we mean, okay, this is a closing statement where we're tying everything together. Where we're gonna, I'm going to start to wrap up my presentation. Simply means finally. Okay? So this is a cue, basically, that we're about to get into another section of the text. But he's going to tie up everything that he has just laid out from about chapter 2, verse, th- verse 13 to chapter 3, verse 7. And then he's going to continue on to another topic. So what Peter has been doing in this section primarily is putting together, summing up all of his instruction as it relates to the believer's experience of submitting to the Lordship of Christ. Remember, this section is is about the footing of true grace, right? In what manner do we stand? And Peter's very clear to say, oh, well, we stand in submission. And there's various contexts of submission. But what he leads us here to, in terms of our thinking, is to say, so whether whether that is before the governing authorities, whether that is in in the relationship of man and wife, whether that is the relationship of a household servant, here is your attitude. And this, I think this is a great encouragement to us because once again, we're directed to things that are meant to be permanent in their character. You know, we talk about Jesus Christ being the rock of our salvation. Jeremy covered that a bit this morning in Sunday school. That when we think of the word rock, we think of something that is immovable, something that is solid, dependable, does not simply waste away with the prevailing outside forces. It is something that is true and dependable. And I think in the same way, these are are character qualities that regardless regardless of what context we are expressing submission, this is the desired character that we are called to express and to show toward one another. Demonstrates very clearly but the Spirit is at work, that demonstrates very clearly that Christ is sustaining His church, and that's meant to encourage us. So putting all that together, we understand this, to sum up, to sum up as Holy Spirit-filled believers, regardless of our setting, we are to focus on the attitudes and character qualities that we bring to each of these things. And I want you to think about something. When we think about marriage, or we think about the various contexts in which we serve, when we think about our relationship to the government, sometimes we think of it more in the context of how those things shape us, okay? How they, well, the effect they have on us, how they may change us for good or for bad. Sometimes it's, it's pretty pathetic the way uh, they affect us. But I think with Peter giving his instruction here the way he does, It's very clear that he's saying, no, bring these character qualities into your experience in each of these contexts. 
and watch God work. I think we'd be pretty surprised at what He does. But this is not optional. These are commands. These are imperatives. These are things that are to be true of everyone who identifies themselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. So here is the first one. Remember, we're talking about big picture. In each of these character qualities, we find that we are able to be a blessing, okay, to bring grace to each of these situations. So the first one is this. Be harmonious. To sum up, all of you, be harmonious. So he's not just talking to individuals, right? He is talking to the, the, the corporate body, all of you, each of you, bearing witness to this alongside one another. This is not privatized Christianity. This is the church coming together and bearing witness of the necessity of these character qualities. So he says, first, be harmonious. And what this means literally is same think. When you're harmonious, you think the same. Now, this, of course, goes far beyond merely having the same opinions about something. If you have spent five minutes in our men's Bible study, you will realize that a lot of the men there have lots of different opinions about things. Now, we typically don't beat each other over the head with those opinions, but not too much. Thank you. Yeah. But, it, but what Peter's communicating here goes far beyond those opinions. When Scripture talks about thinking, it almost always does go beyond mere opinions. When it says same think, it's going to the deep recesses of the mind, how a man thinks in his heart. These things are, the same thing deals with the very convictions of the soul, what man ponders in his innermost being, what he really thinks about, what he believes. So of course, when it comes to the life of the church, we're not merely talking about opinions. What we're talking about here, and the main purpose of this, is the spiritual unity that emerges from, I would say, the same spiritual experience. Now, that experience that we're talking about is our starting point. That is the experience of being made alive, as Peter has enumerated in the first chapter, being saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So if that is your starting point, I would, I would venture to guess, based on what Scripture says, that we have a real opportunity to engage in what is called same-think. This is much different from what we call groupthink, where we bring a bunch of opinions together based on our experiences. They're not objective. They don't really matter entirely. They're not authoritative. When it talks about same think, it's thinking that is grounded ultimately in truth. And we'll break this down a little bit as we, as we go along. But what we need to establish here is that its starting point is being saved by grace through faith in Christ. And that provides the very basis for everything else we do in life. If we are not sharing a common salvation, there will be no same thing. Harmony is impossible. We need that foundation. Produces a oneness of purpose, a oneness of direction, desire, even a oneness in life itself. We share life in the body together. That cannot exist unless we think the same or unless we have that same foundation, common experience of being raised to life in Christ. And harmony, of course, is something that is, is very important to the life of the church. I would say a primary characteristic. It's no wonder Peter actually mentions that as the first thing. And many things, I think, flow out of this same thing, this harmonious spirit that we share together in Christ. Listen to John 17, 20 through 23. This is Jesus praying for his disciples. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So our unity, I mean, think about that. That statement should blow us away, that our unity is to be reflective of the unity that Christ shares with the Father. That's how close we are to walk with one another. That is the reality that is meant to be reflected here. So let's go on in this passage from John 17. But they may also, but they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. So you have a maturing of unity, a, 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 a unity rather than disunity, rather than strife. That is what the church, folks, needs to be known for. A unity grounded ultimately in the gospel. A unity grounded in the truth of God's word. Not our opinions. 
not our opinions. And listen to this, reading on. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that, here's the purpose, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Now, how in the world is that going to happen if the church is always fighting and backbiting and at odds with each other? God is using the church as instrumental in this knowledge, that this global kind of knowledge. And what is that knowledge? It's no secret. It's that the Father sent the Son. I mean, the simplicity and yet beauty of that truth cannot be overstated. That is what, as the church, we want the world to know. That the Father sent Jesus and loved them even as you have loved me. That he has loved us with a life-giving, death-conquering kind of love. And this really, I think, strikes at the heart of what is so, it's practically become a golden calf in unbelieving culture is this, is this idea of, of diversity. And I wonder that where that comes from. And diversity is hardly ever explained. And I don't want to go down a rabbit trail here, but when, we, when Scripture talks about unity, it is not so much unity through diversity, it's unity through sharing a common life. We are, we are anchored on the things that we have in common, right? Not primarily our differences. Our differences, yes, are incidental. Because God calls people to Christ from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. But he calls us ultimately to the same thing, that is faith in Christ, and to the same life. We should celebrate the things we have in common. I mean, unity in, it's not unity in diversity, it's unity in spite of it. How much truer should that be when it comes to things of eternal significance? So let's break this down a little bit. I think this will get, us, get the wheels turning about what this same think looks like, what, what it means to be harmonious. And I've listed, I believe, I think it's four. Managed to get down four. And most of these will be, will be familiar, but just by way of application, because I want, if we're talking about same think, then I want us to think about this. These are pretty simple. It means same authority. To be harmonious means to have the same authority. What is our authority? It's Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ, King and Savior, King of kings, Lord of lords, King of, ruler of the kings of the earth. That's our authority. How has he talked to us? Through his word, through the pages of Holy Scripture. That is our starting point. When we talk about authority, that is our starting point, and we never deviate from it. That's, this, this is where opinions are dangerous. Okay? Well, the word says this. Well, I think this. Well, <laughs> I know, right? Or I feel this way. It doesn't matter doesn't matter what your feelings are. doesn't matter what, you're think, what, you're, what you think. What matters is what God thinks and what God says. That is our starting point. That must always be our starting point and authority. What Christ has to say through his word. And even to demonstrate that, we're going to hit this in a couple of weeks. In verse 15, if you want to look down in 1 Peter, what does Peter say? But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That is our starting point, right? Sanctifying Christ as Lord. We, our starting point is the lordship of Christ and his authority and no other. I think this is getting harder and harder for some Christians in some churches. We, we want to start somewhere else. You know, as we, we, we've talked a lot about this myth of neutrality. We want to start on neutral ground, put our biases aside. Okay. And I would say to you as instruction, never give up your biases because everyone has them that the advantage you have as spirit-filled believers is that your biases are true. Your biases are accurate. Your biases, as long as they're grounded in scripture, in scripture, are invincible. They're rock solid. So when it comes to our church, that is where we start. We have, if we are going to have same think, then we must have the same authority. And it begins with Christ and his lordship and his word. And I will, and I will say this that if that is our starting point, all the other things I mentioned will fall into place as long as Christ is Lord. Here's the other one. Same priority. What is our priority? Very simply stated in Scripture. It is the gospel. It is discipling the nations. This church's life verse, so to speak, it's been there from the beginning, is stated in Acts 28.31, that we are preaching the kingdom of God and teaching things about the Lord Jesus Christ, but it doesn't stop there. We're doing it in a particular fashion. With all openness, 
We don't hide it. And unhindered. Can you imagine this? Paul's situation, being, being kind of tossed around from authority to authority, eventually being imprisoned. He did not see the gospel as being hindered in any way by his imprisonment. He was right where God had him and had him for a purpose. But he never saw the gospel as being hampered by the fact that he was in jail or a free man walking around. But that's our priority, a very simple one. If we are thinking the same, may we, think, may we have the same priority. Here's another one. This one's a little stickier because we've been working through this one for quite a while, but bear with me. It also means to have the same mentality. Authority, priority, mentality. So it is in this mentality where we try to answer the question, where is Emmaus Road Reformed Baptist Church going? What's our, what's our focus? What do we think about the priority just stated? What do we think that is going to accomplish? This has been a subject that has come up many times, and I think it is very important that we do think the same thing about that, and even if we're not in, you know, all on the same page or the same place, because this is something we, we work through continually based on what Scripture's testimony is, so it's not something that comes overnight. But I will say this, our mentality ought to be this, is that Christ's kingdom has overcome and will continue to overcome all so-called earthly powers based on what? The power of His death and resurrection and the gospel going forward. Christ's kingdom has overcome and will continue to overcome all so-called earthly and heavenly powers. Will the enemy fight back? Of course the enemy will fight back. But why does the enemy fight back? The enemy fights back because it is on the defensive. That's why. You know, we've, we've used these uh, analogies before and it's appropriate to do so. We've, talking, we've talked about the sinking ship. We've talked about snatching brands from the fire, as if we're just desperately trying to pick out as, pick out as many people as possible, save as, get as many people saved as possible without any view of victory, without any real solid view of God's kingdom advancing regardless of what your eschatology is. And we're saying Christ has not only retaken the ship, it's not going to sink, but he has thrown the bad captain overboard. Okay? Let's start believing that. I know I said let's start believing that a couple weeks ago. I'm saying it again because I want us to really believe that. I want us to be confident in the power of the gospel and its advancement. Here's the other thing. Not only are we not limited to snatching burning brands from the fire, but this fire that consumes souls, Christ has overcome and will stamp out. Remember, the gates of hell will not overcome it. The gates of hell are on the defensive. You say, well, what scripture do you use to say this? Listen to this. John 12, 31. This is, this is a red letter verse, guys. So. <laughs> Jesus says, the ruler of this world has been cast out. How are we to understand it, but in this sense? The ruler of this world has been cast out. He's been thrown out. There's a new ruler. John 16, 11. Not only has the ruler of this world been cast out, the ruler of this world has been judged. He's been judged. He's been cast out. He's been judged. He's been found wanting. Listen to Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And when you were dead in your wrongdoings and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our wrongdoings. And we look at that, we're like, oh yeah, personal individual salvation. Yes, that's awesome. And it is. But that's only half the story. Listen to what's next. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. God won through Christ. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. And we're talking about primarily heavenly rulers and authorities, the principalities, the spiritual forces of darkness of this age, the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. He not only won, but he won big. Remember, it's one thing. It's one thing to win. 
it's another thing to conquer, right? When you make your enemy look so bad, your opponent so bad, but they're just limping. They're limping off the field, finding a hole to crawl in so they can die and never show their face again, right? That's how devastating the victory was. And that's the victory that Christ has, and that's the victory we have in Him. That's the mentality. That's our mentality, Christians, in Christ. Knowing that the ruler of this world has been cast out and judged, has been thrown overboard. And how about this? Same trajectory. Where do we end up? What is our destiny? we got to think the same here. That we are, as Peter has just so uh, clearly uh, proclaimed, that our trajectory is one of glory. One in which we together as the people of God... As a holy house, receive our heavenly inheritance, our inheritance which is reserved in heaven for us, that will never be taken away, that will never spoil. It's there, and it is for us, because Christ has won it for us. See, this is what it means to be harmonious. This is what it means to same think. To use another analogy, Think, when we think of harmony, what do we t- typically think of? We think of, his, uh, think of his music, right? There's the melody, right? The main, the main line of music. And then, you know, we can hear it when we worship together. It's actually very pretty, right? There's the melody. It goes along. And then someone comes along and sings accompanying complementary notes. And it sounds more complete, right? More complete when you put those things together. So often explained this way, and I quote, harmony is the composite product when individual musical voices grouped together to form a cohesive whole. Think of an orchestra. The flute player may be playing one note, the violinist plays a different note, and the trombonist plays yet a different note. But when their individual parts are heard together, harmony is created. End quote. That, I mean, what a beautiful description of what the church can be when it thinks together in the same fashion with the same authority, with the same priority, right? With the same mentality, with the same trajectory of glory. That's what it means to be harmonious. And that's only one thing. That's one character quality. Let's go to the next one. Be sympathetic. And I think we could say pretty clearly that this is what will naturally emerge when you have harmony, when you have sameness of thought, you will have a sympathetic spirit within your church. We all have the mind of Christ. We all have the same Savior, the same righteousness, the same spirit, the same destination. If we all compose the body of Christ, and if there is harmony, it gives us strength. Surely we would say there is sympathy in the life of that church. There's lots of sympathy. And I, I think when we understand sympathy, this is more of coming alongside someone and saying, oh, shucks, stinks to be you, sorry, you know, almost like a tisk-tisk that doesn't really seek to get involved on any, on any significant level. You know, you have my sympathy, and for some reason we hold up a hand. I think there's more than that in view, especially since it is predicated on being harmonious in all these varying situations. When we talk about sympathy, we talk about something that is, yes, going on in the inner man. It is a sensitivity that we have toward one another's struggles, toward one another's suffering, and ultimately towards one another's needs. We're not only aware of them, but there is a desire to seek to meet those needs, to give comfort, to mourn with those who mourn. Once again, consider the audience to whom Peter is writing. Time when they are seeing an increase in persecution by an unbelieving Roman society, and as Paul says, when one, when one member suffers, we all suffer. We suffer together. It is only when we seek to detach ourselves from one another when we just stop feeling it. When we lose sympathy with one another. We make that mistake when we equate suffering with sin. Oh, this person is going through a hard time. They must be not walking with the Lord. They must be backsliding, right? Sometimes we mistakenly, and I would say sinfully, assume that. But no, sympathy is, is a willingness to suffer alongside the person. It's very similar to compassion when we're willing to take the burdens of a brother or sister in Christ upon ourselves and to walk with them, to bear the burden with them. I mean, even when we hear stories of of persecution, you know, halfway around the world, whether that be the persecuted church in the Sudan or in China, I mean, we feel that, right? The whole body suffers 
We want to reach out. We want to help. Even though we can't be there physically, we are aware of it's happening and there's a sense of unrest in the soul. And we feel that pain because of the, the affliction that our brothers and sisters of Christ go through even on a regular basis. There's also an anguish that we experience because the person that is Jesus Christ, the person who deserves the most honor, love, and worship is being assaulted and blasphemed and misunderstood. So our sympathy goes to that point where we are able to suffer with one another. And I would say sympathy also involves the, the other side of it. When, when, when one member rejoices, what do we also do? We rejoice alongside of them. And we praise God for all of His goodness and grace and mercy that He extends to us. I think the principle here is very simple. That as a church, we're never to live a life that is detached from the rest of the body. And I think sympathy lends itself to explaining that not only is this a physical uh, instruction, but it also has to do with an emotional level. Yes, Christians feel. Christians have emotions. Emotions are a gift from God. And we relate to them in terms of how Scripture instructs us to. We relate to them on the basis of truth, sharing with one another in affliction and also in triumph. But we never seek detachment from the rest of the body. Being sympathetic means that we are, we, we are devoted to the cause of reconciliation continually with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We walk together to try to resolve disputes, to come to a mutual acknowledgement and rejoicing in the truth. And what I want to talk about in terms of this is, is something that is that has recently emerged in, 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 in culture. We're we've been talking a lot about culture because there's so many different things that are, that are coming up. And for some reason, the church is put on the spot. I mean, you mark, mark my words, this is getting more and more concentrated toward the church. We are being blamed for what is going on in society today, even though we bring life and light through the gospel. But a new uh, cultural nuance has emerged, and I want us to be aware of it. In fact, if you, follow, if you guys follow uh, James White at all, he's very helpful with this, very informative. But this is what James White identifies as what we call empathy. See, we're talking here about sympathy, right? Suffering with one another. He calls it empathy. And I'm quoting from a post he, he made uh, this past week. He says, empathy. But the new cultural, and it has flown into the church as well, orthodoxy is this. So cultural orthodoxy is, you shall empathize. See, we thought the 11th commandment was thou shalt be nice. There's a 12th one. Thou shalt empathize. So he goes on to say this, and I quote, You shall enter into the emotions of others, and you shall not make judgments about said emotions. Okay, we'll end the quote there. What we just say about emotions? We need to understand mo emotions and relate to them under the authority of what God's Word says about those emotions. So emotions do not drive our understanding of the truth. Truth drives our understanding of emotions. They are good things, but, they, but emotions have no authority. We are never called to feel our way through life. Okay. And yet, today, this 12th commandment of empathy says that we should just do that, but also to, what, what, what Dr. White says, enter into the emotions of others and you shall not make judgments about said emotions. Scripture says, yes, you shall make judgments about emotions. So Dr. White continues, by doing so, you shall, in, you shall validate all human experiences as supreme. The greatest sin of all today is to say the emotions that person is experiencing are the result of sinful rebellion against God and hence do not require my validation, support, or celebration. <laughs> How dare you? That is the great rule I stepped on and now I must now pay the price. Dr. White's going to be put in Facebook jail at some point, you know. It's like <laughs> badge of honor right there. That's, like, that's now the purple heart of Christianity being put in Facebook jail. But you see what he's saying here. We are, as a rule, based on some foreign Bible-rejecting authority, required to validate emotions as authoritative. If someone feels a particular way, then that must be true, and who are we to criticize it? Who are we to criticize that person? We're Christians. We're the church. That's who we are to criticize it. We scrutinize it. We compare it to what Jesus says, our ultimate authority. And if it does not match, we are to reject it. We are to expose it. And we are to continue to proclaim the gospel faithfully before it. 
How dare we? Here's why we dare, because Christ already dared, so we can dare as well. That's why. But just to be aware of that, the difference between a biblical and Christ-like sympathy versus this worldly, unbelieving empathy. Peter continues, we're also called to be brotherly. I think this, again, watch the dominoes fall. We start with harmony. We think the same way. We're sympathetic. We suffer alongside with one another. What is that going to produce? What is that going to engender? Well, brotherliness. Okay. Be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly. We're familiar with this word Philadelphia. It's where we draw this word. Brotherly love gives us the image of a close bond between two people who are related. So, what is the lesson here for the church? It's very simple. If we are brotherly, what, what, how do we treat each other? Like family, right? Some of you may be thinking like family, oh dear. But, but family, like we, like we belong to one another. We, another way of thinking it is to treat one another as if we share the same parentage, that is, we are sons of God, and we live in the same household, which we do. We live in the holy house that is called the church, under the same authority, under the same father. We are to treat one another as brotherly, to be to be a family in Christ. And I would say spiritual bonds are always stronger than physical bonds. We have that saying, blood is thicker than water, indeed, but the, what is thicker than blood is the Spirit. The Spirit is thicker than blood. And the, and the binds that we have tied ourselves to, they're tied with one another, is that spiritual bond. So we treat another, one another like family. And as we grow with one another in the faith, we are called to do those simple things like look after one another's spiritual well-being, to guard one another from the evil one, to, to uh, demand repentance when sin is committed. We guard each other's hearts from sin and temptation. We are constantly nourishing one another off the pure milk of the word, doing what is necessary to edify and build up each other. That's what it means to be brotherly. In most families, we would say, yeah, my brother were in trouble, I'd be there for him. I'd drop what I was doing and I would go be with my brother. Works the same way in the church. Here's another one. Harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted. Okay, once again, a more, a more uh, what, we would, what we would classify as an emotional kind of characteristic. This is one of those things that demonstrates how emotion remains a key function in the Christian life, but as it is guided by biblical truth. This is presented in the context of, of Christians living harmonious with one another. And this kind-heartedness springs forth from a unity of conviction regarding what God has revealed in the Scriptures. This word used for kind-hearted, it's a pretty violent uh, comparison, but it's the same word used in Acts 1.18, which describes the suicide of Judas. It said after he hung himself, what happened was his body burst open and his bowels and intestines fell around him. Pretty violent, but that's the word that's being used here. First, to this visceral nature, things we really feel on the inside. We know that about emotions. Even when used rightly, we do. We say we feel it. It affects our physicality. We feel things on the inside. And this kind-heartedness that Peter has in view here marks a very profound compassion that is shown toward others when they are in pain. So you see a, a parallel here between what it is to be kind-hearted and sympathetic. Sympathetic pointing to the fact that we're willing to suffer with one another and do so, and kind-heartedness is the aspect that seeks to meet that need when suffering occurs. And even when suffering isn't necessarily occurring, we are all ca called to be kind-hearted, to be ready to meet our, the needs that we have, that we experience together. Think about even Jesus' kind-heartedness in the Gospels, it just, the Gospels describing him as, as weeping for people, feeling compassion for sinners. Why? Because they were sheep without a shepherd. And now we have a shepherd. We have the good shepherd. How much more now are we motivated and strengthened to be kind-hearted with one another rather than shutting our hearts off toward one another and closing that door? No, always be open to meet that need because our need, as we grow, our needs are many. Our needs will multiply. And we're going to have to stand in steadfast attention so we can meet those needs as they come up. And some of those needs are going to be difficult, but 
And Christ is Lord. He owns everything. And I believe that He will equip us with everything we need so that we can meet one another's needs. This deep-seated compassion we have not only for one another, but also towards sinners. Remember that kind-heartedness does not stop when you walk out the door. In fact, it should explode when you walk out the door. We see a whole community of people who need Christ, who need the Gospel, who need to come to life, who need to place their faith and trust in Him and bow to His Lordship and walk with Him. Okay. And you think, wow, we've said a lot of great stuff. But none of this is possible without the last. Look at this. And humble in spirit. I think this attitude is something that really ties all of these neatly together. This is, this is, the, attitude, this is the attitude that really is foundational for so many of these things to be a regular fixture in the life of the church. I mean, other than love, humility is perhaps the greatest virtue that the Holy Spirit cultivates in the believer. Notice, of course, he says humble spirit. He doesn't just say humility, but a, but a humble spirit. That means a genuine humility, one that is characteristic and ongoing in the inner man. That is a disposition that is put there by the indwelling Holy Spirit. That we find this fundamental attitude that is the pulse of new life in Christ, and that is humility. It is humility that allows the church to function as it should. Think about what we were apart from Christ before we were raised to life. What were we? What reigned in the heart but pride? That self-exalting, self-promoting, self-worshipping, and self-centered disposition that seeks to rebel against God and dethrone Him. And here's the other thing I'll say about pride and why it's so dangerous, especially in this context, is pride is not merely content with reigning being in charge, pride is only satisfied when all potential opposition is eliminated. And that means, think about that, how that plays out in the church. If you have a, an unrepentant, proud man, that man sees every other saint as competition, as a competition for supremacy, a perceived threat. And how in the world can the church function and maintain any of these other aforementioned characteristics if we see one another as competition? How can we function if we are unable to take correction and appeal from the Word of God and commit ourselves to one another? How are we able to do that if we are proud and self-centered and self-conceited? In his letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, Paul instructs the saints in the church of Philippi to do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard others as better than yourself. Now notice a couple things in this passage. You don't have to turn there, but think about it because we go through it often, right? Here's the first. When Paul says in humility, consider others better than yourself, it is only in humility that you will ever do those things. Only when you are humble will you ever be able to successfully consider others as better than yourself. Outside of humility, you'll, never, you'll, you'll always think you're more important than everybody else. Without humility, your mindset will always be, oh, that person isn't more important than me. I need to look out for number one. How dare they take up my time? You're always going to be self-important without humility. Without humility of mind, lowliness of mind. Here's another one. Notice humility is not described here only as thinking less of yourself, though surely true humility involves that. It is the attitude of heart that enables me to think more of others, right? Right? Because without thinking more of others, without basically exalting your brother in your heart, what are you doing? All it is is a self-deprecation. Oh, woe is me. I'm so terrible. I'm so vile. I'm so wretched. I mean, come on. Stop it. You're saved by grace. You are raised in the heavenlies with Christ. You are in a good place. Now, what humility says is, I am now going to raise my brother up here with me, where he is, in Christ and bestow upon him the same honor and dignity that I so readily put upon myself. So that's the second thing. Allows you to think better of others. Humility, furthermore, is the attitude that allows me to see my desperate situation. It allowed me at first, when I came to Christ, to see myself as a lost sinner that needs grace, that needs a Savior. Humility acknowledges that without Christ I can do nothing, but I am still dependent upon Him just as much as I, as I was when I was outside of Christ. I can still do nothing without Him. 
And then there's this continual dependence upon Christ that allows us to walk humbly before one another. Because, I mean, think about how this works practically throughout the, the life of the church. Oh, you're dependent on, on Christ too? So am I. Yeah, let's walk together, depend, de- depending on Christ and not on ourselves. Think about this. Are the proud harmonious? Are the proud sympathetic? No, the proud, the proud man is a noisy gong. The proud man is not sympathetic. He's not willing to suffer with others. Are the proud brotherly and unselfish and have kind hearts? No. They only see what they can get out of things, how they can benefit. Do the proud feel a deep anguish when they see others in pain? See, pursuit of all of these things is only possible if you are humble. And I would add this. Humility is not only thinking less of yourself. Humility is not only thinking more of your brother. Humility is also thinking less about yourself. We have self on the mind constantly. It's putting your own interests aside and thinking about your brother, not in terms of who he is in Christ, but just spending more time thinking about how you can love and serve people who belong to the body of Christ. That's what it means to be humble. Humble in spirit, true humility in the inner man. Let's go on to verse 9. Then it gives some negative commands. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So we've been through some of these. I think we look upon the character of Christ earlier on in this text. We understand what this means. We don't seek vengeance. We don't seek to get even. You know, when Peter uses this word evil, he's describing more than just words and action. He's describing the quality of evil itself. Let's say today, payback and revenge are big in our culture. We live in a culture of vengeance. I know we like to paint it with this pretty picture. We use certain words like we just went through. Empathy, right? We even say, we use words like justice. But we're not, li- we're, not, we're not hearing these words said based on a biblical worldview. What we are seeing play out in our society is, is returning evil for evil. It's not justice. It's not forgiveness. It's one of punishment. It's one of vengeance. And the church is called to be no part of it, not returning evil for evil. And as, and as persecution and affliction grows, and this, this works both ways, guys. Sometimes we think of persecution as coming from without, but also from within. In our immaturity, when we do not walk in Christ-likeness, we are tempted to return evil for evil. Peter says no. And the, and the pressure mounts too. And I mean, persecution can tend to ruin your day. Can, it, can, it can sour you. But don't return evil for evil. Puts the brakes on the whole thing. Because we may think, oh, how good it would be to give it back to them. But no, we've already learned. Do not take matters into your own hands like Jesus and trust yourself to the one who judges justly. Peter's using this actually as a present imperative as if to say, stop now. Stop now. And this command is nothing new. Listen to Leviticus 19.18. This applies for us today. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Very important instruction here. What is, what is the opposite of, of, of uh, not taking vengeance? Not just, or, or taking vengeance? It's not simply not taking vengeance. It's not withholding vengeance. It's loving your neighbor as yourself. Even if your neighbor is despicable, even if, you're, even if your neighbor is in a foul mood, even if your neighbor hates God, even if your neighbor hates you, you shall not take vengeance. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So whenever form this ungodly vengeance rears its head, violence against you, violence against Christ, what do we do? We always take a redemptive view toward it. How can, how can the gospel be proclaimed? How can the love of God for a sinful human race manifest itself? Love your neighbor. And then he says, I am the Lord, in case you were wondering where this command was coming from. Love that. Love that about the law. This has always been the expectation for God's people that we do not retaliate in this manner. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And in the meantime, love your neighbor in such a way where you are able to clearly explain how one can avoid the vengeance of God. Proclaim the gospel to him. Remember what Peter just said. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. He did not retaliate, made no threats, but trusted in the one who judges justly. Or insult for insult, the text goes on to say. Insult for insult. 
Insult is basically abusive speech, whether that be cursing, slander, misrepresenting someone. It's descriptive of all the cheap shots we're familiar with, just to undermine that person for the fact that they violated us in some way, or they insulted us, or they spoke evil of us. Just like evil for evil, restrain your tongue. Do not do evil for evil. Do not speak evil for evil. Do not exchange insult for insult. Remember, you're not competing. The unbeliever is not your competition. Remember that the unbeliever has, is a beaten enemy and you are trying to point them to Christ. So what is the use? What, what gain is it to insult them back? To, do, to, to play that game? To be guilty of the same sin? Again, don't be petty. Don't be petty. Speak redemptively. And trust in God and leave vengeance to Him. Listen to Colossians 8, which tells us to eliminate filthy language from our lips. Ephesians 4.29 tells us to say nothing unwholesome, but only what is useful for building up. So you have the negative imperative and the positive imperative. Not only don't do this, but do do this. I mean, filthy speech is something so egregious that even Paul tells the Corinthians not even to have a meal with a person. Don't sit down with a person who is regularly abusive in the way they speak. It's very true. Abusive speech has a way of contaminating everything it touches. When you are around abusive speech, you'll find it hard not to start using it yourself. These patterns are normal to the unbeliever, but they are not to be typical of those who identify themselves with Christ. We do not use these things to sow discord, something which the Lord hates. So it is very necessary. It is imperative that we guard ourselves against it. Because these are, guys, these are easy sins we can fall into. They did something to me, I'm going to give it right back to you. You say something evil, well, I'm going to give it right back to you. The temptation is so real. It's just, it's, it's such a, it's like a, it's bait that is dangled in front of us. Don't take the bait. How do we resist this though? I think we're told here. This is the, that explanation. It says, but give a blessing instead. See, it's not enough to just say, I'm not going to exchange evil for evil or insult for insult. But he says, do this. It is often the, the godly things that we do that keep us from doing that which is ungodly. But give a blessing instead. Give a blessing instead. We pretty much already explained that. Even Paul says this to Corinthians. When we are reviled, we bless. When someone curses you, bless them. The word that comes, the word that we get from this is the same as the English word eulogy. Where are, you, where are eulogies found? Where do we give a eulogy? Funerals, right? Think a good, it's a good word. We're given a good word. It's, it's, it's so tragic that we save a eulogy when someone's died. You know, sit, sit here at a funeral. I'm going to give a good word. And that's, all, that's fine. But think of it in the context of life. Because what is a good word supposed to do? The good word that we preach is meant to give life. Why constrain it to a funeral? Why confine it to a funeral, right? The person's already dead. Focus on using your words, these blessings, these good words, words that are useful for building up and leading someone to life rather than waiting for the presence of death. Speak what is good to one another while they are still here and alive and kicking. When we are reviled, we bless. I mean, how are, how are some practical ways we can do this? We can be a blessing. We can speak a good word by forgiving quickly, by not holding grudges and not looking for every occasion to accuse. See, as a church, the last thing we want to be known for is being easily offended. It is to our honor that we are able to overlook an offense. Forgive quickly. I think that was application a couple sermons ago. Forgive quickly. Another way we can be a blessing to others to speak a good word is by praying for others. You don't want to listen to the word I'll speak to you? Fine, God will listen. I can appeal to Him. I can speak a good word to God and appeal to you and appeal to Him for your sake. Church that prays together stays together. And in, in a general sense, we can be a blessing to people by exemplifying all of the things that we have just mentioned. The harmony, the sympathy, the brotherly kind-heartedness, the humility of spirit. See, these aren't mysteries, guys. These are very plain instructions. I think the problem is that we don't look for opportunities to put them on display in the honor and glory of Christ. 
be a blessing to others by looking for opportunities then to use our spiritual gifts. We all, no, no Christian is totally useless. No Christian is without a spiritual gift. You are part of the body of Christ. We'll talk about this in chapter four. You have a spiritual gift or gifts in which you can use those to be a blessing to the body of Christ. That is how we are able to preserve harmony and brotherly love in all of these things. And above all, when we speak a blessing, what is the habit of the church? When we come here together, who do we bless above all? We bless God. Man, I know we love saying God bless America, but man, America bless God. We need to be blessing God's name and telling everyone else, you need to bless God's name. Return to Him in repentance and faith and honor Him. We do this because He deserves it. He deserves to be blessed. We praise Him because we know that in every situation He is good and faithful. And then very quickly in closing, we talk about this being explained by a godly calling. Listen to what Peter says. For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Now, Peter's just said this. You were called for this very purpose, right? But what was the context? You were called to suffer. But we're not to wallow in our suffering. See, it's not, it's not always an either or, guys. Most of the time in the Christian life, it's a both end. Do all of these things. Suffer for Christ's sake, but in the middle of it, bless for Christ's sake as well. You were called for that very purpose. Speak a blessing. Why? Because you're going to get the blessing. See, we would say, yes, we are living a blessed life now, but there is more, but we but we live that blessed life in light of a greater blessing to come because we were called to inherit a blessing. And if that is the case, do not spend your life, do not spend your days on earth cursing. Do not live your days on earth as a church and as individuals living inconsistently with the blessing you are going to inherit. That makes no sense. If you're going to inherit a blessing, be a blessing, speak a blessing to others in the name of Christ. This blessing, of course, is the blessing ultimately of, a, of eternal life, the blessing that I have on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection and the life that I now live in Him with all joy, with all hope, with all anticipation, looking forward to all of the good things that will occur as Christ's kingdom advance, advances through the proclamation of the gospel. You're called to inherit a blessing. You are living a blessed life now. So it's simple to glean from this text that calling. You were called for this very purpose. You think about that. Very stated. This is the purpose of the church in Christ. To be a blessing to others with the view that we also inherit that blessing. So there it is. Very clearly expressed. Very clearly explained. Why do we do all these things? So that we would live consistent with the blessing that we are going to inherit. And think, guys, this week, even starting today, think of how we can cultivate this amongst each other. Because these are very serious things. We, these are things we tend to gloss over. We don't think very deeply. We don't think very hard about them. We don't often take an inventory as to whether or not these things are present in their life. And in Christ, they are available. They're ready. They're ready to use the problem is I think we don't use them. We don't check to see if these are actually habits that we have cultivated in our own lives. But think about that priority, to be a blessing to one another because God has given us every resource necessary to do just that. Not to hide away and wait for things to peter out of control. No, to do this as a public witness as God's kingdom advances. So let's be a blessing to Him and a blessing because of Him. More next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, thank You again for the love You have for us. We thank You that we have such an opportunity to be a blessing to, as, as Your holy people to look at a text like this and, and take stock of, of how these things are expressed in our lives and um, such simple truths that we can overlook. Sometimes we we emphasize things that perhaps are secondary to this, but we are your people. We're, we're the body of Christ. We're not meant to walk through this by ourselves, isolating ourselves in some kind of private spirituality. No, we are called to practice these things as the people of God, but also to practice this publicly, to be a public witness for 
your gospel, for your kingdom. So I pray that this would be true of us, Lord, that for Emmaus Road Church, we would be harmonious, we would be sympathetic, kind-hearted, brotherly, that we would think the same about who you are and about who you have called us to be. And yes, it's, it's hard. It can be difficult. There's so many temptations, so many mitigating factors that can distract us to keep us from walking with each other. But Lord, this is the, the responsibility of you that you have given us. And I pray, Lord, that as your Spirit empowers us, this, this is still a, uh, an easy yoke and a light burden, but it is one we are called to acknowledge and put into practice. We want these things to be true of us. We want these things to be consistent of us. And we can go and we can go in power and authority all day long and proclaim your kingdom, but how are we if we do not have these things? We would think that the gospel would fall on deaf ears if the power that we declare that it has is devoid in our is, is void in our church. And we don't want it to be like that. So help us, Lord, to to walk with you, that these things would be abundant in their supply, ready to use for the edification and building up of your people. We can only rely on you for it. Without you, Lord, we have nothing. Nothing is, uh, none of these things would be possible if not for your intervention and involvement and constant strengthening uh, of this body. So we, so we, Lord, we plead to you for that strength and for an obvious presence of all these things that Peter has encouraged us with this morning. All for Christ's glory, all for his honor, all for his name, in which we pray. Amen.